welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Kurt Rock ain't no sucker. What does that mean, Jeremy? Can't fool this dude. No? He knows too much, man. He knows too much. Well, you know, <laughs> I was doing I was doing my research on Kurt, and, and it turns out he's a geologist. Now, when I mm. was uh, coming up in the petroleum engineering, you know, the, the first mentor I had, uh, Reservoir Engineers, took me down to meet the geologist on the asset team and said, uh, all right, this guy's a geologist, so whatever he says, divide it by three. <laughs> and we'll, and that's, that's where we start. <laughs> that's awesome. So, Kurt... Um, why don't you Why don't you tell the guests a little bit about yourself? Um, you hit my radar. I don't know, maybe a year, a couple of years ago, and started to iterate back and forth. You've got a pretty good social media presence. I think you're pretty outspoken for somebody who sits on the operator side, um, where oftentimes the people are fairly muted. But wanted to wanted to get kind of a sense of who who you are, um, what you're doing. I know you're here in Denver, but kind of give us the the lowdown on the last however many years of life you've had. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I'm uh, another Texas kid in oil and gas. Uh, I grew up in Dallas. Um, I've heard of that place. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, uh, really, I guess the short version, I got started, kind of got involved with some of the interested in science and animals, was certain I was going to be a vet and ended up working on ranches and docks and some weird jobs in the world trying to figure out what I wanted to do, ended up going to Texas and switched from vet to science or geology because I enjoyed drinking beers with my professors more than I enjoyed studying organic molecules. And wearing sandals. Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, So that took me to uh, uh, the professor there, Mark Kluse, who had a big influence on me in structural geology and I think probably played a pretty big role in me uh, going to UCLA for a master's degree and kind of exploring the academic side. And when I got out, it was 2008. Um, I'd been studying tectonics and earthquake forecasting and kind of built some of the modeling and um, continuum mechanics and sort of math side, uh, but didn't want to stay in academics. So I uh, watched the world burning around me and kind of went uh, working hard to find a, get recruited into or get a job in oil and gas because I'd seen it when I worked at, uh, was at school at Texas. Um, ended up at Pioneer. Uh, and there I had a couple of people that played a big role in sort of introducing me to um, ways of thinking about the industry and really taught me a lot about what mattered because I came in as a overeducated academic and really didn't know the first thing about oil and gas. Uh, so some people like Skip Rhodes and Chris Modica and uh, Scott LaPierre, uh, Caleb Pollock, we used to uh, had lots of fun, lots of fun conversations outside and inside of oil and gas. Uh, there's an interesting group of people there and worked under Andrew Corliss and Kevin Schmidt probably were two big people who played a big role and just kind of showing me how this business worked. Um, after I worked at Pioneer, I was at a small company and I think working at Silver Creek uh, in Dallas was really eye-opening. Uh, and I, I recommend it to anybody, the uh, getting out from the larger companies, you realize how many of the systems that we work in just evolved and haven't really been thought out very well. And so I want to I started jump questioning in. a lot of the things we were doing and sort of re- redesigning yeah. or realizing the processes that we were doing and how we made decisions was 
we knew a lot less than I thought coming out of school, which uh, that really <laughs> sort of helped me a lot to start start uh, being more comfortable uh, finding and overturning sacred cows. So, so you you were at Pioneer, a behemoth, right? Was was big even then, a dozen years ago, and then you go to Silver Creek. Um, how many people were at Silver Creek? Oh, I think we were about, I don't know, maybe. 30 people with the field. Yeah. So, so tiny. Right. And, and you mentioned from the technology standpoint, we hadn't really evolved, right. It had sort of started somewhere and just expanded to, to cater to bigger. T- tell me a little bit about, um, you know, kind of that reality that you came to and what you've taken from that going forward. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, it's a little bit that I worked at Incana afterwards and now I'm at Verdad, which is a similar kind of big guy, small guy um, yeah. shift. Wow. Um, and in both cases, uh, I've spent a lot of time working on uh, using code and algorithms to replace expensive um, software or to kind of get into the weeds of a process or a workflow that was um, had an established way of doing things at the larger companies, but really needed a little bit more interrogation, some more attention. And so coming to the smaller, smaller side, um, one of the things I enjoy a lot is um, there's a little bit of a manual process side because you just have less resources, but yeah. you also get to think more about what step, what's important here, what matters, um, what parts of a petrophysical model do you really, really matter, or do you even need to be paying attention to petrophysics at all? And is there something else that's more important and kind of driving value for your uh, drilling program? So I'd, I'd like to circle back to one thing. It's, it's kind of my pet thing. But going back to your early career, you, you you mentioned, you know, you didn't know what you didn't know coming into the oil and gas space. Right. <clears throat> but as a as a structural geologist and doing all those studies, what was the biggest misconception right off the bat that had to kind of uh, did, that you came up with or that you had coming into the industry? Um, I think really it was that we understood after having done this for decades that we understood more about how, how the systems worked. Um, probably helps that, or doesn't help, whichever way you look at it. Uh, I started working at Pioneer at about the time that the shale revolution was really um, becoming dominant. I think Eagleford had just been discovered by Petrohawk. Um, and so that, that sort of transition of thinking and uh, getting away from permeability uh, and in trying to understand what drove value in these fields. Um, I didn't know that I didn't know the first thing about logs. So not knowing that you couldn't measure how much oil was in the ground, that was new. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I also thought, uh, I think became aware pretty quickly that the, um, there's a lot of like reservoir engineering math that we do. That's really impressive. There's a lot of technology that we use, but it's sort of all focused sort of around the drill bit or down hole. Once you get into the office, we're still living in 1980 and that, um, Seeing that after having, you know, a bunch of my friends after UCLA, they're off at JPL and NASA and doing some program, working at uh, SpaceX and some other companies. And you start seeing the contrast of how oil and gas works compared to some of these other industries um, or sectors. And I think our narrowness of skill set in being very focused on oil and gas um, engineering degrees, geology degrees, we have a really pretty narrow view of the world. And I think that was surprising to me. I kind of thought there'd be more, um, yeah, broader views and more of a, uh, a diverse, uh, kind of 
worldview on how to approach the business. So from your, I mean, I guess, and then you, you're fast forward to now what you're doing, you're talking about applying maybe a little bit more mathematics in what you're doing to make things work. So you, you bring now able to kind of circle back and bring back that work you were doing on earthquakes and modeling those things and start to bring that into your space now? Yeah, I'd say that what I really pulled from that was um, sort of the inverse matrices and how and building a, a linear inversion and kind of understanding the mechanics of how you can kind of connect statistics to an inversion to, which is a glorified way of talking about just linear extrapolations and multi-dimensional space. But as I think about that, as the world has moved more and more and more, there's a lot of talk. I mean, ML and AI are all over the place. And most people have no idea what they're talking about. Um, they're just kind of fancy black boxes and they're not that complicated. Uh, but if you don't understand any of the math that's going on, it's easy to construct a model that's really poorly framed to not pay attention to some factors and get outside of the, uh, get yourself in trouble. And uh, so that's probably where I've found myself pulling from that academic background and sort of where my research was um, and trying to apply it to where, what, what I'm doing sort of day to day or where I see the industry going. Yeah, and I think I see when people apply those techniques and they do kind of fit into that black box and they don't understand the mathematics, a distrust of what's coming out of them is beginning to develop. You know, oh, well, it, it, it didn't predict it this time, so that doesn't work. So we're going to move on. Yeah, there's a so another thing that was happening when I was coming out of school was uh, the financial crisis, which kind of put me down. a. Um, I was reading a whole bunch of, I guess, finance blogs at the time. Um, and that has been a, a really important part of my growth since school was um, learning more about um, sort of the quantitative financial world and the uh, behavioral psychology of of investors and, and what we know and what we've learned about how the human brain works. Um, there's a guy, Daniel Kahneman, if you've read him, if you haven't, I recommend anybody listening, go study that world a little bit. There's a great book by uh, Annie Duke called Thinking in Bets, which is a great place poker. to go if you don't poker. know any of that space. That's the uh, um, the poker lady? Yeah, she's the poker player. Yep. Um, right. But she's, uh, anyway, so that thinking about we like to think that our brains are super rational and that you know, give us more information and I'll make a better decision. And that's just not how we're wired. Uh, one of my favorite, one of the good examples is uh, I think uh, Kahneman's is his research starts in Israel and uh, the strongest correlation between judges um, severity of sentencing was how long it had been since their last snack. And wow. that's, that's not unique to them. That's a human element. And those are the kinds of things in oil and gas, we like to think we're all engineers and scientists and we're super, we think data is important. We think information, we think we're smart. And that's just not the way the human brain is wired. It's wired to survive on the planes, not to analyze a, you know, a big reservoir model in, in your, uh, on your computer. So uh, watching that space and kind of learning from that has played a big role in how I think about what we should be doing and how we can apply these, these models. Um, I think going back though, <laughs> you asked a different question that kind of sent me off down a, a tangent and I've just lost track of what the main question was. Well, I took the lesson I took out of that is make sure that you get a snack in uh, regularly. Yeah. Well, it's uh, <laughs> just understand how your brain works. I think right. and there's a lot of research of what uh, that we can draw on that can help yeah. us uh, or good writing research is the wrong word. Um, but good writing for understanding like how, how do, what, what can I, what games can I play to help myself make better decisions? And for companies that are, 
we have these models. We're doing a lot of a lot of work to predict uh, well logs or to uh, scale up some Vasquez and Bags fluid property. And I think that that's where I get excited about the machine learning side or what we can build with models and what I pull from from my training uh, is how to rethink these models and tools that we use. So um, there's a lot of workflows that are published and we're used to using the equations that came out of those workflows um, to understand something like a fluid property. And I think we're at a point now where what we could do is redesign the analysis to take something that was published in 1970 based on 150 samples from the Middle East and say, why don't I use all 2000 samples that I have from the entire US or something to build a more tailored model that's more useful for my field. And I think that's where we're going to have um, there's a lot of room for advancement and sort of different thinking about uh, how we uh, approach oil and gas development. A million different ways I could I could take this right now, but but I, I can't get off of the um, the sentencing and the uh, last time somebody had a <laughs> snack. It actually reminds me of a conversation I had with my cousin a long time ago. I was a, a year younger than him in uh, in high school and college and all that. And I, I remember it didn't totally make sense to me why if I applied to two schools that were even sort of across the board, one, maybe I get rejected or waitlisted at another one I get in. Right. It didn't totally make sense to me why that would happen. And I remember feeling perplexed, like, well, I just wanted all the options. Right. And I wanted to be accepted by all like what, why would, and my cousin Josh made a, made a really good point. He goes, you don't know what the person, like the person's day was like that was reading your essay that you wrote. Maybe they were like in a rush or their kid had to go to the hospital or they were hungry and they just like glossed over the last five and just three years in a pile based on like your name or the first five things they read. Like this is less of an indictment on you. Like these are people making this analysis. And I remember it really stuck with me like, okay, right. Like we don't just live in a vacuum, which you sort of think when you're writing college essays that it's going to be analyzed by like someone who will, will really want to sit down and, and analyze it. And maybe that doesn't happen. It's a person on the other side. Um, so really salient stuff um, right there. Love that. As, as far as oil and gas goes, um, I want to talk about verdad, the truth. Did you know that, Tim, in Espanol? The truth? I, I did know that verdad is truth in Espanol. Yes, sir. Back to back Paul Pierce references and episodes. There we go. The truth, my favorite oh, basketball player go. of all time. Anyways, uh, the truth. One of the things that stuck out to me when I first met Arthur, um, who I believe is the CEO, seven, eight years ago in Dallas, was that for a really small family-centric organization, um, there was an emphasis on technology. And I think seeing you end up there and knowing how you value technology, uh, I see why it's a logical fit. Can, can you talk through some of the tools you guys have tried to make the most of? What have you done sort of in line with what big companies do? And then what have you done to counteract the fact that you just simply don't have the same manpower as an Encana, Oventive, or, or Pioneer? Yeah, so I think um, the the growth here has been, is probably where we've been able to use um technology well uh we struggle i mean first of all i guess Verdad, we've got a we're less than 100 people and we've got seventeen thousand barrels of oil a day and we're looking to double it this year i think we're eighty-five thousand acres or so and dj oil window um and uh real happy with how things are going managed to get through covid without um really stressing too hard it was difficult but we um 
have found ourselves now with you know a frat crew and a rig going and within cash flow and looking to make pay down debt or make distributions. So we've managed to do all that with a pretty small team uh, by using Intel technology and managing going through our information smartly. Uh, and the goal there is to try and avoid doing some of the, a lot of the busy work that um, really absorbs a lot of manpower. Um, so one of the things that I've spent a lot of time on, uh, although I guess every six months it seems like a change is what I'm kind of focusing on. But uh, once it's not reasonable for a company to be building new geology maps every quarter. Uh, just the world's not changing that much, so probably doesn't need to be updated as fast or the process for updating should be established, but then you don't need to be re starting from the ground up, which I think when I worked at Pioneer, I think we remapped the, the Permian Basin. I mean, every six months it felt like, um, and that that's just, we, we don't spend that much time on it. Um, but more importantly, so we spend time on it, but once we have a map and once we have things that are a workflow that's functional, we move on to the next thing. And I think keeping track of what's important, what are the things, what are the knobs that you can turn in your business that drive value is something that um, we, we spend, uh, I certainly spend a lot of time on, um, looking at uh, completions metrics versus um, petrophysical resource in place or fluid properties or lift mechanisms and trying to figure out where, where can we spend, focus our attention to something that drives value. Um, and then using that also scaling up technology to uh, automate or streamline some of the workflows that are busy work. So there's a lot of uh, data pipelines I build to help us commit, uh, execute um, or, or, or produce uh, regulatory documents and things that are um, kind of arduous to put together. But once you understand the workflow, you can kind of streamline them. Uh, and so those are some things that we do um, to, or I do to try and help Verdad um, expand. Broad, more broadly, we have some technology that we're using, um, really some services that are helping us integrate data. So connecting accounting systems to field production systems where we can actually look at things um, in real time and try and understand what's going on. Nice. Um, the reality though, is that we're like every company and we're all kind of dealing with these legacy systems and legacy technology, both in the field and in the office and trying to figure out how, what are the right things to upgrade um, and what isn't worth spending the money on or what systems are we not willing to kind of overturn and start over. Um, Personally, I'm all, always on the uh, 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 pushing for go faster, do sure. more. Um, but I think that that's the balance that we're always trying to, to, to strike. So, Verdad, <clears throat> um, do you see kind of being a fast, are you guys more of a fast follower of technology? Or are you guys on the, the cutting edge of, of uh, technology innovation? There's some um, small companies that we've got. Um, well, there, there's a company that uh, we've spent some time with that I think are they're a young company or relatively young that we're we're willing to partner with and kind of get things off the ground. But for the most part, we're not looking to um, go spend a lot of. T I mean, frankly, we don't have a lot of bandwidth to do evaluations of really advanced cutting edge technology. So we're looking a lot for a lot more um, practical applications. Um, that said, we're doing, I mean, we have like bottom hole gauges and are doing some of the pressure transient tests and really kind of trying to use um, low cost tools that are high in information that we can really, that are going to change something about how we operate. 
Um, I think that's something we get lost in in the industry often is we'll do get involved in science projects. And I <laughs> love science projects, but we really easily get lost in trying to understand something more and more and more and forget, is this going to change any decision I make in the business? Is this going to have any effect, effect on my capital allocation? And if it's not, probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, and so we try and everything gets, everything yeah. gets anchored back to that's not what geologists the, say. What's the value of what we're doing. <laughs> that's that is so funny. You know what I mean? It's like that you you just you just made that statement as if you were a finance guy, right? I don't think I've ever heard a geologist say, "Are you sure we should be doing this science fair project?" Versus like, shh, shh they're letting us do a science fair project. <laughs> <laughs> they're fun. I do, you know, I, I do like the, uh, you know, for those who are not watching this on YouTube or on video and, are, you know, behind Kurt is that it, cool. it looks like every geologist's office I remember ever walking into. You've got, uh, you know, grid maps up with, I, don't, I guess, locations. And maybe is that a drilling schedule over your right shoulder? Oh, it's a it's a Kasuna chart um, of DJ Bay or Colorado. So it's uh, different basins with the formations. uh correlated across because the names aren't the same as you. That's even better, even better. That's neat. Yeah. Got some great geologic ages stuck in there and you got some yeah. rolled up maps at the ready whenever you need Always. to pull those out. It's, <laughs> it's a classic. Yeah, I'm actually pretty bad on the rolled up maps. I tend to live in uh, PDFs. So I, I don't know the last time I unrolled some of those. <laughs> I just, it's just kind of a fun thing. So I, I do have a couple of technical questions. I know we got some places that, that we want to take this conversation, but uh, DJ Basin, you know, Verdad is obviously operating in Colorado, been a lot of changes geopolitically in Colorado over the years, making it, at least from the outside, a difficult place to operate. And it seems like what's happened now is you develop Colorado's specialist companies that are operating, basically, the big guys are getting out and turning it over to people who are just going to operate in Colorado. Is that what you're seeing? And is Verdad obviously one of those? So uh, I think that's a that's a great question. Actually, it's a good segue for somewhere I know you guys want to go uh, or have had some people on before kind of talking about some of the where the industry's headed from a sort of like an environmental standpoint. Yes. Um, because as you look at the regulations in Colorado, there's a lot of them that are uh, really frustrating. And I like to... Uh, uh, point out the contrast of drilling in the LA basin happens, mm. but, and drilling in Colorado in the plains where there's no, that many people happens. And then in the, in the, uh, the suburbs that are expanding into oil fields and people are moving in and don't realize it, there's this uncanny valley where there's not enough concentration and people get upset quickly. And that's like Barnett had the same problem in Texas, but, if when that gets built up, when Denver gets built up big enough and you can hide a rig behind a high rise, we'll probably be back, assuming things get ever get shut down. But right now it's the, the regulators have a, uh, a really kind of they're in a tough spot and the incentives like political incentives are pretty poor. Nobody wants to stand up and say, uh, you know, we can't legally they have the right to, to drill here. Um, I can't stop them. Uh, it's. A good thing for the for the planet. We're keeping energy costs down. We're keeping uh, uh, Scott the whole Scott Tinker uh, viewpoint of uh, energy poverty and and what it means for quality of life. There's a whole lot of benefits of having a local oil and gas community um, that's active. The alternative is uh, external combustion vehicles where we run off of coal in Wyoming uh, or Colorado because we're a coal state. 
And people don't know that. Um, and yeah. there's no political incentive to come in and kind of speak those kinds of truths. And that put, makes it difficult. So lots of, lots of regulations are going in, lots of weird things are happening, but also the industry is learning how to interact with um, a government and communities and higher standards. And as an industry, we're not really used to having very, we have standards. We have, we're not used to be, the standards are going up, I guess. And so we're not, mm -hmm. that feels uh, uncomfortable, but the reality is that's where the, the world is heading. And frankly, uh, I like to, I know that if I sit in my garage with my car running or go stand next to a compressor that uh, a diesel compressor and in a closed space, I come out in a body bag. And so that not happening, that's a good thing. Um, so we're moving in a, in a direction that I certainly want my kids to live in. I think it leaves, makes the world a little bit better if we can, as we learn how to be a more um, effective steward of the environment and the communities that we work in. Um, there's definitely conflicts. There's a lot of pain um, in Colorado about it, but we're figuring it out and moving in a direction that I think is not um, not that crazy. But what it means is that the Colorado operators are getting good at dealing with this rising uh, standard. We're going to be the ones, that, these are the kind of companies yeah. and the kind of places where we're learning the rules that are going to be expanding and going to other other states. We're going to see oil fields getting higher levels of regulation. Um, we're also going to see smarter regulation, I think, over time as, as governments figure out more about how to do it well, as opposed to sort of the metrics they think are important versus things that are actually relevant. Sure. Um, there's the politics side is a whole sort of side, other part of it, and we'll see where that goes. But um, I feel like the there's a real pain. There's really annoying steps here. There's a lot of it's difficult, but um, companies are figuring out ways to operate. And the reality is my perspective on this is rosier than some, partly because we don't drill or we don't live um, in a lot of the higher density areas. So our, our operations are pretty rural, uh, which makes things a lot easier for us. You know, I think there's something to be said. Mike Umbro, we've had on the show a couple of yep. times, talks about, wouldn't you rather be producing here where we have the regulations yep. than bringing in, you know, a scope one or two from another place that doesn't. And his example was always Ecuador for California. But, Absolutely. you know, with Colorado, produce it locally where you've got these constraints. But if, you know, who knows what a neighboring state necessarily, what their restrictions are. Because ultimately, you're going to share in the pollution no matter where it was produced. I think that's one of the things that there's a couple of weird things going on. I mean, the... I don't know that the world that the incentives are really going to ever exist where somebody in the middle of a city who doesn't know anything about energy policy yeah. but is really focused on air quality I think they're always going to have a somewhat mythical view of uh yeah. like the the plug in their wall and that's just a challenge and that's probably most voters um so there's some level of just diff challenge that we're always going to deal with um and you can look at like, there's a whole number of industries where you can see that we kind of have outsourced the uh, the downside of an industry to some other poor country and just let them deal with it. Uh, and hopefully that's not a, where we're going to just go with uh, with energy, but that's certainly a possibility. I, I've developed more of a sympathy, or I guess I, I've evolved into having an understanding or sympathy for both sides of this equation. And it was very eye-opening for me. I go on, I live here in Colorado. 
you know, kind of a purple state, I guess, and then and go to Texas and Oklahoma a decent amount on business, less since since COVID. Um, and then, you know, for personal, I'll go back to New England to see family. Last November, I went out to a retreat in California. And whoa, man, that was really eye-opening going to San Francisco and getting on a highway. Holy freaking Tesla, Batman. Like, <laughs> if, if you lived out there, you'd think that we were way behind. You'd be like, dude, like those guys need to get where we are. We got charging stations. We got, the, we have Tesla's like, like they're there. You know what I mean? Like in their mind, like they've done their part, they've moved on. Like what's taking everybody else so long. And in our world, it's like, Oh, the infrastructure is not there. Oil's still going to be around. Like it's just a, it's a very different mindset. So I can see why somebody who lives in Marin County who drives two Tesla's <laughs> feels like they've done their part and they don't need oil and gas. Right. So it, it's, it's a little bit, of course it's uneducated and it's mythical, but I see how you get there if that's your bubble. Yeah, I think that like right now, it's like it, we're fortunate or the world is fortunate that it hasn't been a cold winter this year. Yeah. Um, but you see what's happening with natural gas prices. You can look at Europe. You can look at, frankly, California too. Uh, switching on. Uh, I think California was switching on natural gas plants. England was converting natural gas plants to oil. Um, and that so from an emission standpoint, natural gas power to oil power is moving in the wrong direction. Exactly. And that speaks to the lack of investment in oil and gas, the yep. uh, terror of our fear of oil and gas companies to expand as prices have gone up. So we've seen less new uh, volume reaching the market. But also the regulatory side is just keeping holding back a level of energy that can be delivered. And there's people, if so long as your power's on, it's easy to keep saying, yeah, I want more of that. Right. But I think where this winter is going to be interesting as we keep moving through it to see whether this evolves anybody's thinking or leads to some slightly smarter policy around energy because uh, Europe for sure um, and California too um, we're, and frankly the whole planet we're all dealing with some realities right now that you just can't quite get enough uh, the technology isn't there yet for some of these renewables that are getting a lot of attention and if you don't want to talk about nuclear then there's you got it you got to have natural gas yeah. pretty heavily in the equation and that means oil and gas and that's that's just a challenge that I think a lot of the world is uh, really, even politicians are kind of slowly coming around to. And I'm hopeful that uh, the current situation in the, just on the planet is going to is going to help help that come. I mean, Trisha Curtis is a great person to talk to better than me about any of this kind of stuff. But um, it's a it's a really interesting point that we're at because we're basically at a pain point And some of the the contrast between the world as it is and the world as we wish it were are. Uh, coming head to head. Go ahead, Tim. So we haven't talked about this on the air. I don't know. What part of Denver do you live in, Kurt? Uh, I live out in Golden. Golden. Okay. So not too far away from it, but we haven't talked. Yeah. We haven't talked too much about the, uh, the, the fires that hit and fairly close to you, uh, Jeremy, but now we got two Coloradans on here. I'm curious. We're what, two weeks out, a week out from, uh, at least when I was covering all the news, but what's that been like from you guys are slightly outside of that read the, the zone, but what's that been like for you guys to kind of watch and be very part of it, but uh, close to you? Yeah, there's been, uh, I know a a number of people who uh, um, I personally don't know anybody that was involved, but I know I've got a lot of sort of first order uh, connections through places I've worked that have been affected and um, I've seen a lot. There's been a lot of outreach and uh, 
GoFundMes and just support campaigns that have gone off to try and help people. It's a hell of a way to start the year. Sad. Um, oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I that, mean, it's just, it's a, it's kind of a reality though. Just, it's been extremely dry out here this, frankly, this whole uh, fall and winter. Um, so I, I guess a reminder of, you were talking about drilling in communities and uh, the environmental side, you just, we got to pay attention and be careful and put out fires, watch, you know, just a spark from a car. It doesn't take much to, to really have a, a, a big downside. And um, it's rough to watch. So Jerry, I know it was a little bit closer for you. Yeah. What was your, what was your uh, experience? Devastating, man. Um, so I live in Lafayette and the fire was in Superior and Louisville. So when we lived over in El Dorado Springs, Tim, that's almost like that main road off of uh, 93 is where it started. Basically. Okay, so, what, like, so give me this real quick. How, how close is Lafayette to Louisville and Superior? And, and Yeah, that? so you kind of got like Boulder's right here and then Superior's here and then Louisville's here and Lafayette's there, right? So okay, the fire so. sort of started here and then and started going east, basically, and sort of wrapped wrapped around like that. So was um, it a concern for you and your family that it was going to get to your house? If it had gotten to our house, the amount of damage it would have done would would be unspeakable beyond the thousand structures that it, that it already took out. So I was bracing for the fact that it could happen because it got within about two miles, I think, two and a half miles. But my God, if, if it was going to get there, it would have destroyed all of Louisville. I mean, it, and, and a lot of Lafayette. It's, it's unbelievable to think about it. It hit very close to home for us. Um, I think we know about a dozen people who lost their homes. Uh, my friend Marshall Jones, who was uh, an executive at Sklar Energy, was back east, I think, with his family on vacation, comes back, his home is burned completely to the ground. So people who live the same type of lives that we do are now in hotels with two, three, four kids in one hotel room, right? Um, trying to figure out what the hell to do with no clothes. Uh, it, it's super messy, um, un unfortunate you know, uh, very sad. I actually, a week ago, which was about a week after the fires, I drove out to where it started or close to where it really hit hard near the, the Tesla charging um, station, the Costco, the Target, because that's, those are like the places that we go. That's our Costco. That's our Target. That's our Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, all that shit. Um, and oh man, like the smell still like seven, eight, nine days after the fire, it still smells. Like, I, I guess that's the part that really st stuck out to me was like, oh, my God, like, you can't be over that. It, it still smells nine days later. So a lot of appreciation for the first responders and um, obviously a lot of sadness and sympathy for everyone who lost their homes. You almost feel guilty for being like, I'm happy that we're safe and, and good yeah. over here. But, um, you know, certainly uh, a lot of compassion for those who are dealing with a lot of shit right now. Yeah, it's always it's always good to you get that perspective and how fortunate you feel, yeah. and you don't want to be happy about it. That yeah, okay, we dodged a we dodged a pretty significant problem, but because you know what it feels like to someone on the other side, so it, it, it tricky. What do you even say? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thank you for for bringing that up, Tim. Because because there was a point, and I think it started to fade at least for me, but. But just about every morning, you know, you're getting going, you're working, and then I'd have sort of this, this split second, and I'm just like, man. And it would just hit me like, there are people in the same exact position that I'm in, working from yeah. a hotel room with their kids in the room right now, no house. And I assume when, when the fire's going, you can walk out on your back patio and see smoke. 
and smell it just constant, oh, right? Yeah, yeah we oh, could yeah. see it ripping it off across the plains. It was windy that day too. 110 miles an hour. So they're like the the videos of the the. I mean, it's faster than cars can go, right? Because it's just, yeah. And then of course it snowed the next day, and there's been snow on the ground for the last week. It's like what the. But man, we're we're uh you know people are resilient around here. We had the floods too. That was about eight and a half years ago. That sucked. Um. Some people have had to deal with both <laughs> getting their houses messed up with floods and fires. We've been fortunate with both, but um, yeah, it's shitty. I mean, I don't know, because I'm a technology kind of guy, I'm always, I think about how at least we were able to get reactions and, and get going to get to respond. I mean, yep. I think it was minutes before we were working on it, just the wind was so bad that it was really hard to get under control. But that kind of uh, reaction speed is something that I think is important for thinking about like connecting it to the oil and gas side as well as what's the role of technology? And um, there's a lot of people who are focused on trying to like, can I predict the next fire? What, what, what can I predict? And there's a probably a, there's a lot of value just in trying to reduce reaction times and getting away from, Hey, somebody when waiting for a firefighter to happen to go by the fire versus we've got sensors, we've got cameras, we've got alarms, we've got all the cell phones and all the people driving by and re raising that reaction speed. And that's probably something um, I think we should be, or I look forward at least in oil and gas as we can, find ways to use technology to really change and accelerate how fast we react to things going on in the field, react to markets, um, reduce spills or emissions and really kind of help make this there. That's one of the places I see this industry getting, having a lot of room for improvement and get excited about is, is raising those speeds. Yep. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, and I, and I have this conversation, it, it's very different. If you talk to somebody who is an executive at a big company, right. Uh, 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 Oxy or, uh, the, you know, Chesapeake or, or somebody like that, a top, a top 10, top 20 operator in the executive boardroom, they're concerned about ESG strategy in the field. People are still concerned very much so about safety, right? Like we don't want anybody, people are still falling off of rigs and shit, dying and breaking legs and stuff. We don't hear about it every day, but it still happens. Like that's where we need to be. That's the most important piece to the companies that are still operating and working every day is, is that, right? So uh -huh. I don't think the people who are actually doing the work lose sight of that. I think in the back office and, and the boardroom, it's very much about a grandiose ESG plan, um, but execution is more around safety right now. Yeah, I mean, I'll bite on that one pretty hard because I find the, uh, the ESG discussions are pretty poor. Uh, as an industry, I mean, my, I, so I mentioned technology. I think one of, one of my favorite plot charts is to look at, uh, you can do it for any industry, but sort of data volume um, involved in, in the industry. And so it's basically exponentially growing uh, year on year. And yet our return on capital, pick your return on capital metric is declining year on year on year. Something's broken there. Uh, and so the first thing you got to do, if you're going to be a company that exists in 10, 20 years, is you got to be profitable. So you got to figure out some way to use your information to make better capital allocation decisions. And then there's the ESG stuff. The reason people are upset with us is because we don't, we haven't been turning a profit. And until we can fix that, nothing else matters. Uh, and the ESG metrics, it doesn't matter if you're the cleanest company on the planet. If you're not profitable, you're not going to be around to keep making that beneficial impact on the, on the world. So the the discussion and the way the oil and gas community is looking at ESG, it, if you uh, a lot of people even will speak candidly about it and say that oh we just it's really just looking for capital um, as opposed to that there's something structural they're changing in the way they do things. There are companies doing big changes, 
but a lot of the uh, a lot of the discussion is really greenwashing your business to try and get some capital. Um, one of my favorite example or things to look at is how little um, tobacco and uh, alcohol talk about uh, ESG. And they're sin stocks. They're sectors that are not particularly popular, but they're profitable. So they're not worrying about this stuff. They're about working fashion. about keeping their business running. And I think in oil and gas, we're getting a little bit confused. Uh, in fact, I basically call bullshit on the whole industry when you've got an industry that can't can't turn has had a problem turning a profit or getting good capital uh, results for 15 years, getting worse and worse and worse. And now you're going to add ESG as a new cost center, and you're just going to try harder. It's not true that we weren't making a we weren't working uh, getting good capital results in the previous. 15 years, 20 years, because we were uh, not trying hard enough. So there's something else. You got to change something structural if you're going to really make this work. But the ESG side, I think it's important. I actually think there's a series of ESG components that are really important. Um, but the, the terms that people are talking about tend to be very environmental focused, like being a net zero oil and yeah, gas company. Yeah. I don't know what the hell that means or how that looks like. It seems <laughs> to me like if you're a net zero oil and gas company, you lost. Uh, but we'll see. But the, the when companies are talking about this, the, the ESG metrics that matter are going to be, we're going to know what they are in 20 years. One of them is definitely being profitable. And I think that we should be focusing a lot more on cash flow and a lot less on governance, yeah. uh, ESG side. Governance is a huge one. I think, I mean, in my mind, I think transparency, uh, cognitive diversity, and, uh, and governance and incentive structures are three things that are great ways to raise your ESG score as a business that directly tie to driving you to smarter capital decisions that are not trying to kill your business like uh, or at antithetical to the business that you're running. So doing uh, carbon offsets is kind of a strange way to approach it. Yeah. there. I don't know how to segue into this, but, you know, Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, he did a, he has this interesting lecture on it's actually a TED talk now, but on safety third. And <laughs> I know that, he says, cause you know, is cause you, he went to a dirty job site and there was someone wearing a safety first hard hat or something like that. And he said, really, is it safety first? Because if it's, if safety is first, you're not, you don't have a business. Yeah. You, you have to, you have to eventually take a risk in order to drive a profit in whatever business you're in. And I'm butchering the whole point of this thing, but it, you know, but you have to be able. Yes, yeah, safety is important, but so are profits. You have to be a profitable company to put safety at a high level, uh, and sometimes you simply just have to take a risk. There's still farmers out, you know, risking themselves to do whatever to, and they want to be safe. And same thing with environmental. I mean, an oil and gas company, we can reduce our scope one, our scope two, but if you're going to hang scope three on Verdad. Never. Because you produce we'll something that some car is going to burn later on, I, you're never going to get to net zero. Well, or uh, if you if you if the metric is not aware of the relative options. So if you've got a guy working in a mine, but the alternative was having a hundred guys working in a mine with no regulatory regulations, no hard hats or anything, or a bunch of kids in the Philippines who are just being sent off into a, into a terrible work environment, the the alternatives are worse than yeah. the options. So you're taking the least dangerous of, frankly, a poor set of options. 
and or an unsafe suite of available options. Right. You're trying to do the best with what you can do. And I think that uh, we are in energy policy. We were talking about that earlier, but uh, understanding what the trade-offs are is the right way to think about decisions as opposed to thinking about each individual choice in a vacuum of is this comparing it to perfect, which basically nothing ranks very well in comparison to some ideal. You're a, you're a geologist, but you preach financial responsibility. You use words <laughs> like antithetical. Who are you, man? Seriously. Uh, one of a kind, he was bearing down some pretty serious mathematic terms earlier that I was like, oh, man, I we're going to. I block we, if, we, if he says Laplace transform, I'm leaving. <laughs> oh, those confuse me too. But but it, it leads me to to I I know I know geologists, been around a lot of them. You're different than a lot of geologists. Um, what what do you see as far as your career path? You know, I mean, do you, do you kind of like what you do um, as a geologist? Do you think could you see yourself running your own company? Could you see yourself transitioning to the technology side longer term? Like, what what do you kind of see for your your path? Yeah, I think about that a lot. I have lots of things going on, I guess. I'm uh, the, the big one is I look at oil and gas and I see this uh, really important industry that has some deep structural problems that are preventing us from taking advantage of technology. Uh, I think it's really fun, Jeremy, we've talked about this a little bit, looking at um, the services that are out there and the gulf between the the technological the level of advancement of sure. some of the services that are out there and then where the operators are and there's a there's a product market fit that every smart kid who comes out of school or smart engineer who goes and builds something says i've got a better mousetrap yep and the industry says i'm not sure i need it because <laughs> i don't understand i don't understand how it fits into my business or the improvement it makes because i can't see the cost of what i'm doing today and that's just there's a whole play, number of places where that comes up. And in my mind, there, there's a, a real need for uh, a new kind of, of operator. Um, I like to say that the uh, I've never been more bullish on U.S. on like U.S. onshore oil or hydrocarbons. But the uh, the actual companies that exist today, I'm pretty humble about whether I think any of them are going to be the companies that are around in 20, 30 years, uh, just because mm -hmm. it's so hard to change the internal structure, the way we make decisions, the way we run our companies, the operating model, uh, because they once you have the wells, we're so focused on sort of day one, it's keep the wells running, uh, manage, make make some changes, keep your systems operating, operate, yep. execute, operate, yep. execute, be efficient. And once you start doing that, the behemoth builds on you and it's never worth, at no point is it worth it for you to invest in changing that over, flipping it into a uh, a new operating model or changing the structure of how you, how your information flows, how you streamline decisions, what you pay attention to. And so we keep forming these silos of your land team and your engineering team and your geology team and your accounting team or by assets. And those are the two org charts we deal with. And that's one example of a place where there's two things we try, neither of them works. And that's all we keep trying. Maybe it's or just keep switching back and forth. Yeah. Every five well, years, just change. Those are the two options. And there's, got, there's, other industries have come up with different ways. Digital transformation is something people talk about. And there's, as far as I'm concerned, the com companies I've studied outside of oil and gas, it doesn't work unless you change the structure of your company. You have to really redesign yourself around decision quality and optimizing for the information yeah. flow instead of the field execution. And until we do that, this industry's stuck. Uh, and so I'm, 
that's a problem that I'm really fired up to solve. We try and work on that um, here at Verdad, um, but you know, I'll live longer than this company, I suspect. So yeah. uh, I look forward to finding other ways and, and where I go next and to keep working on that problem. But that's the thing that whether I can start something that goes down, has a solution and working with people to try and figure out how that could happen, or we can do it with Verdad or I join somebody that that's really the, the future of where I see myself going. Love it. Yeah, I think I'm going to answer the question you asked him and more concisely. He's going to have to form his own company and actually just prove this up. That's that's <laughs> what's going to happen. If he wants, if he wants, yeah. I mean, there, there's there's something to be said for there's a lot to be said for what he's saying. And, and this one more quick story before we before we jump off here, there is a CEO in the space, well known, publicly traded company. This will just give you sort of an insight into the tech innovation that you're seeing amongst some of the bigger operators. And this CEO summoned the head of IT and said, I, I have a business idea. I have a technology idea. You have developers. I know I'm paying you to have developers. I want you to build out this idea. It's an app where if you hear a song that you feel like, you know, you hit a button and then it listens to the song and tells you what that, and it's like, yeah, um, it's called Shazam. And it's been around for 20 years. He's like, are you sure? Is there a competitive opportunity for this? It's like, no. There wow. That's just <laughs> so we're talking about digital oil field. People are asking you to build Shazam. There but we that's go. Where, that, this is one of the things that, uh, you know, we're talking about ESG and ESG metrics that matter. And one of them is diversity. Uh, and it's not diversity for the sake of having um, you know, skin color and sex or sexual orientation and uh, religion and age, none of those on their own actually matter. What matters for your business is to have cognitive diversity. You want people that have, yeah. are drawing from different areas of expertise. And oil and gas is terrible at that. We have a whole bunch of engineers and geologists who all went to basically the same, a very small number of schools, yeah. have a very, tend to have oil and gas only experience. Show me the company. Well, first off, show me the company that's got like a chief technology officer or chief data officer. Those basically their CTOs are basically IT managers for the most part, which yeah. is a misuse of their skills. And we should be looking for the company that's got like a Google, uh, somebody that comes out of Google or Facebook who's working on their data analytics, leading that program. That's not what we see. We should see somebody with uh, who's got a COO who comes out of Toyota. We don't see that. And those are the kinds of things where we could be pulling from either the, the planet, we can be pulling from other industries, pulling from different schools and expanding the awareness so that we're not asking, hey, can you have you ever thought of inventing Shazam? Because I never heard of it. Instead, we're thinking, how could I solve some problem in a creative way that really is a, an advancement as opposed to just looking at each other uh, and trying to kind of the blind leading the blind through a difficult technology tr trouble. You're right. That's that's. And it's not just, and like you said, it's not just creed, race, skin color, accent. It, it's, it's the thought. It's, it's, it's what you offer and can come to as a group that challenges conventional thought and moves the organization forward, um, which, which I mean, people process technology. Technology is still third, right? So you have to put the people, the right people, you know, encourage process and then reward them with technology. And, you know, of the hundreds of companies that I've been into, you know, a, a small percentage do that because frankly, the job has always been get oil out of the ground. So they're doing their job, right? As the job has been mandated, 
Um, but there's always been a disconnect with me. Like, you know, I can make your job easier. You just need this piece of this piece of SaaS. Yeah. But you know, one of the things you mentioned, the job is to keep o- get oil out of the ground. And I think that's a kind of a place where, um, that seems like a, a reasonable way to describe it. And I think as an industry, we, I work in, I mean, the teams that I've worked, upon, worked in very often, we interpret that to mean bring, get as much oil out of the ground as possible. Right. That's not actually what our job is. Our job is to bring out the most profitable oil that we can. So ah. up margins and people get focused on like EURs. EURs really aren't that meaningful. What you want is cash flow, and we're paying it like not paying attention to the right metrics, or we don't even spend much time. We get kind of lazy and fall back into workflows and ways of evaluating fields and wells that are old. And that sort of creativity of sort of overturning some of the old equations or uh, KPIs that we're used to paying attention to and just re-asking a new question of, is this really driving value? Because if it's not, let's go find something that does. That's brilliant. Well, <clears throat> that's probably where I have to cut it off here because now we're hitting onto some, well, we're hitting on some topics. We can go on for a long time, but <laughs> man, uh, Kurt, great having you on. Love getting to know you here a little bit. Jeremy? Yeah, Kurt, um, where can people, where can people find you? I know you've got a decent social media following, uh, maybe find out about you, find out about Verdad, all that fun stuff. Uh, well, Verdad's got their website, uh, or our website and that we have a little bit of information up there. Um, like every oil company, it's, <laughs> it, it's not terribly um, informative, but you can see a little bit about where we're operating. Um, the, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Uh, for those of you that are on there, I'm probably a little bit more vocal on, or I don't know, think on LinkedIn, you're kind of a little careful on Twitter. You can be a little bit more caustic, uh, different worlds. Um, and then we've got Denver data drivers in, uh, in Denver and kind of try and talk about the ways that technology is changing workflows in oil and gas. Um, and so there's a community there, uh, reach out to me at anywhere you can find me. And I'm usually likely to respond unless it's a really terrible marketing pitch. I think we're all tired of those, uh, <laughs> LinkedIn connections that immediately say, Hey, uh, help me or buy my product or some other crap. But yeah, yeah, I can only imagine what the hit rate is on those types of emails. And I'm sure early on with LinkedIn, I probably did a few myself and usually just got me blocked. <laughs> That's yeah. I, I just disconnect and wait for them to grow <laughs> up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate you, brother. Really, really Thank fun you. to talk to you guys. Uh, keep up the good work. Yeah.